are in the midst of a series called The Movement. Everybody say The Movement. We're going through the book of Acts, dialoguing on this question of what does this Acts awakening that we see here, the Holy Spirit moving in phenomenal ways, what does this Acts awakening look like in the real world, in your real life, as God by his spirit uses ordinary people the mission here at Greenhouse is to help ordinary people like you and I become passionate followers of Jesus as God uses ordinary people supernaturally empowered by his spirit to change the world. Last week, we dialogued on this thought that when God's people who are gifted to serve decide to serve, the movement happens. We ended with a, an encouragement, a challenge, if you will, that when God prompts that we would keep saying yes to following the servant king Jesus. This week, I'm going to examine what it looks like to say yes in the face of hardship and opposition. So if you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 6 is a passage. Dads, y'all look good. You showered and everything. You even got a bow tie on, Will. I see you there. That's what I'm talking about, man. Looking good. It's going to be a good day. Acts chapter 6, we'll actually go all the way through. We'll do chapter 6, 7, and 8 this morning, and I'll grab out snippets from it. If you're ready, say, let's do this. All right, we will. Verse eight, now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. But opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as Sicilia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Dads, husbands, do not take this as your life verse, okay? It's not a good idea. Although it's a good life verse for lawyers, I guess. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law, and they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Remember who they accused of that? Jesus, by the way, this one's for free. You know you're doing something right when the haters accuse you of the same things they accuse Jesus of. Amen? All right, we'll keep moving along in the story. As all three of y'all said amen. I feel great so far this morning. For we have heard him say that Jesus, verse 14 of Nazareth, will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Now all, of us, all were sitting in the Sanhedrin looking intently in, at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. That's very interesting. Stephen goes on and in 60 verses delivers this incredibly theologically robust diatribe about the nature and the movement and the story of God. But he goes from Genesis to Jesus, unpacking for these religious leaders, this Sanhedrin, this religious council, the movement and the story of God. And he unpacks this in a way where it is abundantly clear God's word is dwelling richly in Stephen's head, but also in his heart. And I'll jump back, I'll jump in at the the very end, this is how he ends his little sermonette here, verse 51. You stiff-necked people. By the way, not the best recommendation if you're trying to win people over, but this is where he landed. You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. He is not pulling punches. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but you have not obeyed it. Now, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. 
That's an interesting response. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, saw the glory of God, Jesus standing at the right hand, and he said, look, I see the heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. This is the response that kids have. Can you imagine this? Literally, ah, I can't hear you. They run at him, full of rage, drag him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep or he died. And Saul approved of their killing him. Let's pray. Lord, would you speak to our hearts this morning? Would you remind us of who you are? And as a result, who you have called us to be. And Lord, would you speak to every single heart under the sound of my voice here in the room, watching online, over there in Guyana, whatever they are watching. God, would you move by your spirit on this Father's Day? In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and say, get ready. We've been talking about movement and specifically the movement of God throughout this story and, and it's quite easy to thrive, to feel like things are going exceptional. It's easy to thrive when things are going great, but what about when things get difficult? What about when things get challenging? It's been a challenging last few years in the Lash household. You want to talk about health challenges with my father passing away unexpectedly of a stroke. My mom is just on the other side, thank God, cancer-free now from breast cancer. So that's amazing. And I'm very thankful. She's over at the beach. She said, I want to celebrate with God, Heavenly Father. And she's, you know how my mom rolls. She's throwing out seashells she painted on, led two people to the Lord this morning. So that's how she rolls. But it's been a challenging moment and a challenging season in the Lash household over the course of the past several years. And if we're being truly circumspect, it's been a pretty challenging season for probably most of us in one way or another. What do you do when things get challenging? Health challenges, financial challenges, family challenges, relational challenges, career challenges, job loss challenges, economic uncertainty challenges, gas price challenges. Come on, somebody. What do you do? Because it's easy to thrive when things are great, but what about when things get difficult? This happens in life, this happens to humans, and this is happening right here in the book of Acts. Up to this point in our story, God has been moving and things have been amazing and the Holy Spirit's been working and people are being added to their numbers and the church is growing and they've got enough finances and resources to be able to provide for the needs of everybody and things are absolutely incredible and they're getting some threats along the way and, and things are starting to get a little bit challenging but here we have in the book of Acts, the first time we know of that it was not just empty threats, they have murdered one of these followers of Jesus. And I know we know the whole story, so it's easy to be like, yeah, yeah, but they're going to be fine. But they did not know necessarily that they were going to be fine. In fact, this is a crucial crossroads moment because now things have gotten real. One of these followers of Jesus has been executed at the hands of this domestic religious terrorist named Saul, and his name is Stephen. What's going to happen? If you're just looking at this story at first glance, you're like, man, this sure seems like it could shut things down. And yet the movement doesn't stop moving. If anything, it accelerates. How does the movement keep moving even in the face 
of hardship and suffering and persecution and opposition and even death. And so I want us to take a look this morning at the life of Stephen. I've titled this sermon, Lessons from a Martyr, which felt oddly appropriate on Father's Day. Lessons from a Martyr. Three key lessons all revolving around the potency of God's word. If you're taking notes, I'd encourage you to jot this one down. The first one is if you want to thrive in the midst of opposition, point number one is tell yourself the whole story of who God is. Turn to a neighbor and say, the whole story. The whole story. Tell yourself the whole story of who God is. Now, remember, within the context, we've got this church in Jerusalem that's exploding, and God is moving, and people are coming to the Lord, and their lives are being transformed, and there's so many different needs, if you remember last week, that the apostles have to delegate. And so we're first introduced to our boy, Stephen, who is the main human character of this story. If you remember Stephen, Stephen occupied a specific role. Anyone remember what role he was? Stephen was a deacon. Stephen was, was an ordinary, he was not an apostle, he was not a trained orator, he was not a professional minister. Stephen was just a dude. He was just an ordinary person turned passionate follower of Jesus who had been elected to be one of these deacons specifically to serve the widows. Like our boy Stephen, just to break it down, was a widow waiter. That's Stephen, right? That's what he's doing, ordinary dude. He just said, God, I'm here and available. He said yes, and now he is the widow waiter. But we're given a few other descriptors from the scriptures of Stephen. Let's jump back into chapter 6. It tells us this. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. If you remember when the apostles, last week we talked about this, when the apostles talked about what they needed to do and who they needed to elect, they said, look for someone who is full of the spirit and wisdom. I think it's important to note that when, this, when, when God in his sovereignty lays out for us this character, Stephen, he focuses on largely internal attributes. And in a culture obsessed with external trappings of wealth, status, and prestige, apparently God is much more obsessed with character. That'll preach. Stephen's mentioned in the scriptures and immediately it goes into several internal characteristics. He's full of faith. He's full of wisdom, he's full of the Holy Spirit, he's also full of grace and power, but one thing that I think is important to tease out that is evidenced through the story, but not explicitly stated in the story, is that Stephen was not only a man full of the Spirit and power, he was also a man of grace and truth and the Word of God. Like Jesus said, he's, the Father's looking for people who are gonna worship in spirit and in truth, right? Spirit and in truth, we need both of these realities. Stephen walked in the power of God, and he was extremely well-versed in the word of God. How do you know? Because you can see it in his 60-verse sermon. By the way, that I would encourage you to read on your own time. I already read enough verses. Some of y'all were like looking at me like, when are you going to let me sit down, Pastor John? All right, so I'm not going to read it all for you. But this buddy knew the word. And I would argue that this is especially key right now in our current moment in this age as we sort of get a sense of the landscape generationally. Barna, who's kind of one of the, the, the Christian st statisticians of our modern world, have found that overwhelmingly the biblical worldview and a sense of biblical understanding when it comes to life is on sharp decline. According to Barna, only 6% of millennials have a biblical worldview. Only 4% of Gen Z have a biblical worldview, meaning they, they allow the scriptures and the Bible to frame their schema for what's right and wrong, what's good and what's evil. 6% of millennials, that's my generation, I'm at the tail end of it, 4% of Gen Z. 
which means we sit in the midst of a biblical literacy crisis. We have evolved as a culture, I would argue devolved as a culture, to the point where we have become largely biblically illiterate, especially as you move down the generational track, which is a problem because as followers of Jesus, we've been commissioned by Jesus to go and make what? Two parts of that. He said, you're going to go and make disciples, you're going to baptize them, and you're going to teach them to obey everything I've commanded. I don't know if there's ever been a more opportune moment for teaching the ways and the words and the precepts of Jesus than right now. We've got to figure out how to train people, how to help people become fluent in the words of God and tell the whole story of who God is. And this is where Stephen excelled. This is where we see Stephen as a man who knew the word as his 60 verse sermon perks out. He's got the Torah and he's got the prophets. He's got all the known scriptures at that time because obviously book of Acts is being lived, not written, and they don't have the epistles yet. Everything that would have been available to him and heralded his scripture as God's word, Stephen has deeply in his mind and in his heart. And it's not just his 60 verse sermon. Check this out in Acts 6 verse 9. We're told that opposition arises from this Jewish religious group from all over the place, and and they began to argue with Stephen, verse 10, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. I, I picture Stephen with some holy swag. I picture Stephen just rolling up and this group starts trying to start mess and they've got this, this other gospel and this off gospel and they've got these thoughts and Stephen's like, oh, for real? And he just, bah! He just breaks down for them all of, the, all of the truth of God. And he goes through the scriptures and he gets done. He's like, anything else to say? No, I didn't think so. Mic drop. And Stephen just walks. I mean, Buddy had the word dwelling in him deeply. Here's why this matters. We often tend to think, like you, you look at the story of Stephen, especially how he finishes, and we tend to think in our immediate worldview that incredible things happen in a moment. The reality is for anyone who's built a successful business or a successful organization, that rarely, if ever, happens. Great people are not built in a moment either. See, Stephen knew the whole story. Stephen saturated himself in God's word. Why is this important? Because in our current moment, when we are obsessed with immediacy, if all we rely on is a little snippet of quote from a pastor or the little TikTok hot take from a Bible verse, and and we get a huge breadth of of scripture understanding that's only an inch deep, here's what's at stake. As soon as the whatever synagogue of the freedmen that are in your world rolls up to you and gives you something that instead of an inch deep is three inches deep, all of a sudden, and you find yourself in a theological crisis because we feasted on quick little sound bites and we don't know the whole story. And so if someone challenges a little segment, it throws us into this space. And like James says, it's easy to become tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine because we've got to know the whole story. Stephen knew the whole story. Let me give you an example. Let's say you're hanging out with a coworker or a neighbor or a friend and they're like, hey, uh, you're a Christian, right? And you have that moment, your heart starts beating fast. Like, oh gosh, what did I do? Do they see me in traffic? Do they hear me? You know, what's that? What do, they, what, do they follow me on social media? You know, and you're going through all this whole thing. And you're like, no, yeah, yeah, I follow Jesus. They're like, oh, okay. So you like believe the Bible is God's word? And you're like, yeah, I totally, yes, I do. And like, okay, cool. Well, did you know Jesus said you're supposed to hate your parents? And you would, of course, respond and be like, no, no, he didn't. That's ridiculous. Jesus would never say something like that. And then they hit you with a Bible verse. Kapow. 
If anyone, this is Jesus, by the way. This is in the Bible. If anyone comes to me and does not, what does it say? Hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Just to be clear, Jesus explicitly did say you're supposed to hate your parents. Happy Father's Day. And if you don't know the whole story, you get thrown into a theological crisis. But for any of you that are Bible people, if you're not Bible people, I would invite you to come and join the party. The water's fine. We know that, that the way you deal with Bible is that Scripture interprets Scripture. It's called hermeneutics. You rightly divide God's word. And so if you're trying to get a sense, you're like, this just doesn't feel right. No. So what do you do? You look at what all of Scripture has to say. You're like, well, wait a second. In Deuteronomy, it says you're supposed to honor your mother and father, that your days may be long on the earth. In fact, that same exact verse is reiterated multiple times in the Pauline epistles. Paul says the same thing to other churches who wouldn't have been familiar with this. And, and then later on, he says things like, children, obey your parents in the Lord. So this is right. So we know that scripture, interpreting scripture, clearly God does not mean, Jesus is not saying you're supposed to hate your parents. So what is he saying? And then you get to, oh, well, what Jesus is doing here is using a popular technique that rabbis would use. It's essentially hyperbole. He's saying that if your love for God and your commitment to his kingdom doesn't make it look like you just hate and don't even care about anything else, that, then you're, that's what God is actually looking for. See, but if you don't know the whole story, you're in danger of falling for little moments Here's a plug right here, application smack dab in point number one. If you've never read through the whole Bible before, do it. Like this, this year, it's gonna be so immensely helpful for you to know the whole story of who God is. We've got a Bible reading plan on the Greenhouse app. Thanks, Jared, for helping to make that happen. We, we, we've, got, uh, we've got, you could do Bible reading with your microchurch and get that all set up, but there is a robustness and depth of intimacy. There's my boy running out of church. There is a robustness. <laughs> Nothing, nothing is good for a preacher's ego is that. There is a robustness and depth of intimacy we can have with God's word that translates into a steadfastness and depth of relationship with God that'll carry us through the darkest storms, even death itself. This is what we see in Stephen. You're like, Pastor John, are you telling me every time I read the word, it's gonna be like this amazing experience? I'm not necessarily. I'm not saying you're gonna levitate every single time you read the Bible, all right? You're not gonna float out of there into your morning routine. What I'm saying is like consistent Bible reading where you're going after not just the text and the words, but the heart of God. Consistent Bible reading is like consistent diet and exercise. You might not see the effects right away, but you're gonna see them eventually. Amen, Laz, the trainer, amen. Yeah, this is, this is what we know. Stephen immersed himself so fully in God's word that he was able to go against an entire synagogue of Jewish believers from multiple countries and locations, and he was not phased because he had told himself the whole story. You need to tell yourself the whole story of who God is. We have 15 fluencies here at Greenhouse that we're longing for our servant leaders to become increasingly fluent in. One of them is a scripture fluency. I'll read you an excerpt. You can find this on the core docs in the app or on our website says the role of scripture cannot be overstated. One of Jesus's very definitions of a disciple points directly to his word. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. John 8, disciples are people who abide in the word of God. They prioritize the hearing, the reading, the studying, the meditating, the memorizing, and the applying of the words of scripture. See, when there's deep familiarity with the truth of scripture, with the real thing, 
it's easy to spot counterfeits. My wife, Nancy, is an incredible cook. Thank you, Lord, for the gift that she is. But every now and then, she strikes out. And I'll never forget the moment that she made me mac and cheese that was not mac and cheese. She said, hey, babe, I, I, made, I made you some dinner. You can come try this. It's mac and cheese. And I took a bite. And I was like, oh, my God, Nancy, throw that away. The milk spoiled. Like, the milk is bad. This is not good. Something is wrong. And she's just, like, chuckling. She's like, ah. And I'm like, what are you? No, no, I'm serious. You need to throw it away right now. I went to, like, grab the pot. And she's like, no, no, no. And so finally she was like, okay, okay, okay. It's not actually mac and cheese. It's, like, healthy pasta with, like, a, a, a vegetable-based pseudo. What? Butternut squash with some. Basically, it was, it was like vegetable substitute. And she's like, what do you think? I was like, if you would have just told me, hey, I've got a much better way to eat vegetables, I would have been all about it. I would have been like, this is great. And actually, when I tried it in light of vegetables, I was like, this is very tasty. But it was not mac and cheese. Heaven no. I like my mac and cheese with the breadcrumbs on top. Give me a little bit of Haitian mac and cheese. Whoo, Benny Swally Thinel, I'll be right there with it. Like, man, but I'm, I, it was just not. And I remember because I had become proficient in the truth of what mac and cheese really was and what it actually tasted like. You cannot put some imposter past me. And the same holds true spiritually. If you have saturated your life and your mind in the truth of God's word, so much so that you have gotten an appetite and a taste for it, it becomes increasingly easy and simple to spot a counterfeit and an imposter flavor and spit it right out. And this is what Stephen had. And it carried him through challenges and it carried him through opposition. If you want to thrive even in the midst of hardship and opposition, you got to learn to tell yourself, turn your neighbor and say, the whole story. Tell yourself the whole story of who God is. But Bible fluency is not simply about information, which leads us to point number two. Point number one is tell yourself the whole story. Point number two is let the God story transform you. Let the God story transform you. The vision here at Greenhouse is to not be Bible-thumping uh, angry, mean individuals who can hit people up with Pharisee-like rightness all the while being so wrong at heart. The vision is not simply people who know about Jesus, but who know Jesus. It's not information alone. It's transformation. This is actually the, the vision and the goal of a disciple. We use words on purpose. Jesus said and was calling disciples. In, in the Hebrew framework, Jesus, who was a Jewish teacher, he was a rabbi. These disciples would be called Talmudim. That was a Hebrew word. Y'all want to try to say that with me? Talmudim. You just learned some Hebrew. Look at y'all. So sophisticated. Talmudim. Now, now, a Talmudim or a disciple was fundamentally different from how we would know a student today. A student is largely looking for the information so that they can get the right grade and move on with their lives. Disciples are not primarily focused on information. The vision of a disciple is not, how can I get the knowledge out of my teacher's head into my head? The vision for a disciple is, how can I become just like my teacher? Do you see the difference? So disciples are not just looking for head knowledge. They want to get it from their heads to their hearts. And the dream of a disciple is that they would learn to think and act and talk and speak and pray and look and love just like their teacher. They are shooting for a case of mistaken identity that someone would think they're their teacher, just like their teacher. And that's our vision. We want to be like our teacher, like our rabbi. His name is 
Very good. Always right answer in church. Uh, the vision is not biblical knowledge alone. The vision here is that we would, one of the fluencies, we would be people who are greater on the inside than we are on the outside. This is exactly, by the way, how Stephen is described in the scriptures. Stephen is given five internal characteristics and two external characteristics. The focus of God when it comes to this ordinary dude, widow waiter Stephen, is not necessarily all of the power, although the power is on display, but it sets our minds and focus on the internal characteristics that have been birthed in him. Here's my point with this. If you let, as the scripture calls us to, God's word dwell in you richly, the internal action of God's word inevitably and eventually brings about external transformation. The vision is not just to have a bunch of stats in your head because those are the Pharisees and they missed it. The vision is to get stats in your head that change your heart and ultimately change your life. And Stephen is a man transformed. It's no coincidence that we're told here that, that literally Buddy has, a, it says, that, and they saw him in front of the Sanhedrin and he had a face like an angel. He literally, he literally looks like a walking cherub. I don't know, I would love to be a fly in the wall watching this whole thing go down. But he, Stephen has been literally transformed to look heavenly. You see this? He's, they're looking at him, they're like, oh my gosh, he looks angelic or something. I don't think he sprouted wings, but there's something going on. It reminds me of Moses when it said he had been with God and he came out and the people just knew it. You ever been with someone like that? That they just remind you of Jesus? Our godparents growing up, they're named Mark and Ruth and my wife and I joke all the time. We're like, we wonder if they're literally angels. Like the Bible talks about some people sometimes not knowingly entertaining angels. I'm like, I think that might be Mark and Ruth. I'm not 100% sure. She's a nurse, but she just, I mean, serves and loves. In the height of the pandemic, they were like, where, where are the hospitals? They're, they're in healthcare, she is. Where are the hospitals no one wants to be at? Let's go there and work on the COVID floor. Like that was their MO. Right now, I think they might be in the Ukraine. They've been back and forth there. Wherever there is absolute chaos and tragedy, that's where they wanna go because they feel commissioned by God to do that. And, and every time I get around Mark and I'm I'm sitting there talking to him. I'm like, this dude is otherworldly. I feel that Stephen reality. I'm like, man, it's not even just that he reminds me of the words of Jesus. He reminds me of Jesus. I don't know if there's a greater calling and honor in all of life than that. And that's the type of person that Stephen was. That's the kind of person that, that we in in the providence of God can actually become that as God's word dwells in us richly, it doesn't just get into our head, but it transforms our heart and ultimately transforms our very life and our countenance and the way we interact with other people. Point number two is to let the God story transform you. You guys are amazing, but you need to change. I know that because my wife tells me that all the time about me, right? We, 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 we all are in the process of growth and development. And the God story, the gospel is supposed to transform us. Romans 12 says it like this. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be what? Transformed by the renewing of your mind. God's word changes us. God's word makes us strong. I imagine Stephen, I mean, get yourself into this story. I imagine Stephen as he's watching this thing go down. 
And he, Buddy seems pretty intuitive because he kind of knows. You start with the you stiff neck people vibe, and they've already threatened you. better stop preaching in this name. He, I imagine as he begins to see the rocks picked up and the nostrils flare and the gnashing of the teeth, whatever the heck that looks like, as he starts to see this thing go down, I, I imagine Stephen, who was obviously a man steeped in the truth of God's word, who was obviously a man well-versed in Scripture, I imagine him beginning to recite Scripture truth to himself. I, remember, I imagine him thinking about promises like Isaiah 41, where it says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not meet dis, deep, be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you and uphold you with my righteous right hand. Things like Psalm 46, where it says, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Like Deuteronomy 31, where it says, Be strong and courageous. Don't be terrified or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you, and he will never leave you or forsake you. How in the world does the movement keep moving even in the faith of death itself? Because this God story had transformed Stephen, the ordinary dude, the widow waiter, into someone full of supernatural mercy, boldness, and love. And by the way, this reality has not stopped. Right now within Nigeria, there's enormous persecution of Christians. Some of you might be familiar with this. There are churches being bombed. There are tragedies happening on Sundays where people come in and murder Christians in the middle of a service. And, and as we have mission partners on the ground there in Nigeria, and we say, what do you need? What can we do to help? This breaks our heart. It breaks the heart of God. Their response has been, hey, just pray. We don't, we're good. We'll let you know when we need money stuff. It's not monetary right now. What we need is you to pray for boldness because when persecution rises up, we see it in scripture. God's kingdom advances. Pray that we would be bold and strong, that God would comfort our hearts to be faithful till the end. Man, am I glad that the church isn't just American. <sighs> Where in the world does that come from? That's Stephen stuff right there. That's the same thing we see in the book of Acts. That's the people of God being endued with strength from the word of God and being utterly transformed. Ordinary people into passionate followers of Jesus. And as I got to the end of this text, I, I just found myself stunned because in his life and even in his death, Stephen is looking just like somebody he knew and loved and cherished. He's looking just like his teacher and his rabbi, Jesus. Look at how his story ends. Verse 59, chapter seven. They dragged him out, they stoned him, while they were stoning him, Stephen prays, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he falls on his knees and cries out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. How in the world? Like, I, I would like to think that I'm a, a, Jesus has done a work in my heart and life. But if y'all are killing me, my prayer is probably going to be more like, God, get them. Just keeping it real. Stephen is being murdered by a religious terrorist, and his response is, God, give him a pass on this one. His response is, God, give them mercy. His response is, well, his response is, Father, forgive them. Wow. Wow. The way of Jesus was no longer theoretical for Stephen it had become his manner of life. That in his life and even in his death, he echoes the very words of Jesus. 
Church, I want to live like that, man. I want to die like that. Can, can you imagine, like, we're given this little snippet that is obviously not, not very little. It says that, and, and watching this whole thing go down, as this ordinary dude, this widow waiter named Stephen, finishes out his life in this bizarrely supernatural display of grace and mercy, we're saying there was this upstart religious zealous named Saul who happened to be watching and giving his nodding approval for the whole thing to go down. And we know what happens not too long in the story. Saul is miraculously encountered by the grace of God and transformed. And I got to imagine what sort of seeds God planted in the hearts of Saul by this widow waiter who ran and finished his race well. I'm like, Lord, I, I want to live like this. I want to die like this. Where I spend out my life and my days uttering the words and ways of Jesus. Because we got no clues watching. We have no clue who's being impacted. I want to be a Stephen. Ordinary man turned passionate follower of Jesus who ends up changing the course of human history. I want to be a Stephen. Do you? Stephen played his part in God's great movement in this story. And, and this morning, my call as we come to the point of application is that I want to call us and to call you to own and number three, play your part in the story. What's your part in the story? Stephen played his out, and he sits up there in the chronicles of the hall of faith. Stephen played out his part in the story. What's yours? The, the, the canon of scripture is being closed. You're not going, we're not going to have like more books in the Bible. That would be called heresy, all right? But God's story is continuing. The, the redemptive story of God that starts at Genesis and ends at the end of the book in Revelation. God's story is still being written, and just like in Acts, he is writing his story through his People, what's your part in the story? He said, what does that look like, John? I, I want to call us to be like Stephen and consider what that would look like in two specific ways. Way number one is this. Take time to know the story. Take time to know the story. As we see evidenced, and as I mentioned in Stephen's 60-verse sermon and his interaction with the synagogue of the freedmen and all of these things, you do not become this type of word-saturated person overnight and in a vacuum. Stephen had obviously dedicated significant and intentional time to the study and the transforming power of God's word. Do the same. Take dedicated time every single day in worship and in prayer and in the word where you allow the words of God to transform your life and heart and endue you with strength and power. Let it saturate your being and transform you. Because Stephen, we're told, he was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Stephen, we're not, there's nothing exceptional about Stephen. We're not told any, man, he was so intelligent. He had all these gifts, man. Stephen was so handsome like Saul. Stephen was just a dude. Full of power and faith, and God used him mightily. Point number one, take time to know the story. Application number two, step out to live the story. To live the story. When you read through the Bible, don't just read it as a chronicling history of what God has done. Read it as an invitation of the type of things that God wants to do through you. I was talking to my mom this morning. She, she's at the beach somewhere. She might be watching. Hey, mom, love you. We'll see her afterwards, and she's like, you know, I'm celebrating cancer-free. She's like, I just want to get to the beach and get alone with God. 
And so my mom does this thing, I've talked about it before in service, where she's an artist, she paints on seashells. And she writes these little messages from God and she throws them out there in, in the water. And, and she's been doing it for 25, 30, maybe more years. And, and so this morning she's texting, she's like, got to lead the, the chair attendant who rented our chairs to the Lord. Happy Father's Day, God. I'm like, you would. And she texts me later, she's like, got to lead another lady to the Lord. She was in the water and she's like, I don't know, what is God saying to me? My mom said, I'll tell you what God's saying to you right now. Leads another person to the Lord, I'm like, mom. You like sneeze and people get saved. What in the world? But it's her part in the story. God knows I'm not going to paint on seashells and throw them out. That would be a curse to somebody. I can't color to save my life. Can't paint. My, brother, my son's better than me right now. But my mom's got her own unique little thing and her own unique little, I mean, think about, zoom out. How full, if I told y'all, you know, I know this person that changes the world through seashells and paint. You'd be like, come on. But I know somebody who changes the world through seashells and paint. How? Because it's what God's called her to. Any, I mean, imagine if we were a type of community where we just, we say, God, you're writing some crazy story, and in life and in death, whatever you want me to do, whatever my part is, whatever my role is, I say yes to you. That's Stephen. It's so perfect because this very first martyr in this incredible movement of God, he's not some pro, and he's not some preacher, and he's not some apostle, and he's not some trained orator. He's just a dude. who had God's word saturating his life and transforming his heart. Ephesians 2 says that, that God has set up and orchestrated these good works that he's prepared in advance that we should walk in. I imagine all of the good works that God has in store that he wants to do through Seb and that he wants to do through Doris and then he wants to do through Rocky and then he wants to do through Chizo and that he wants to do through Akil. All these good works uniquely tethered to your gifts and calling and personality that are waiting. I think of the micro churches that could be launched and the discipleship groups that could be started and the businesses that could be begun and the calling and the invitation of people into your home and all of the things that God God has in his heart if we would just say yes. To love Jesus, to abide in his word, and then to follow his lead and own and play your part and watch how he comes through church. God has called you to great things. Not measured by the status and significance of this world because we got our metrics all off. God has called you to great things. Just say yes. Let me close it like this. Worship team, you can come. We're going to land in a chorus in the final moment. I spent the last chunk of Friday boohooing in my office, closed the door because I was just ugly crying because I could not get over this ending of Stephen. I'm going to try to get through it without doing the same here on the stage in front of y'all. But there's this really interesting segment of how his story ends that I couldn't shake until it hit me like a freight train. Verse 55, we're, we're sort of told the final moments of Stephen's life on earth. The members of the Sanhedrin get all upset and, and they run at him. Verse 55, it says, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, saw the glory of God, and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see heaven opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. We're told here in the text that Stephen sees it. And then Stephen is so overcome with giddy delight that he says it. Why? Just stuck out of my mind, why? And then I start thinking about all the times because we're, we're told in the scriptures, this idea of, of, of Jesus, of the Son of Man's, you know, at the right hand of the Father, it's biblically normative. It's throughout the trajectory of scripture, but 
But when Jesus talked about it, he said that at the end of Mark, it says that, that Jesus then left the disciples at the very end of the story and he went up and sat down at the right hand of the Father. And then I started going through some of the prophets and, and in the prophets, it was foretold that the Mashiach, the Messiah, he would come and he would be seated at the right hand of the Father. And over and over in the course of scripture, we are found that, that this, this dignified son of man, this messianic title, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Why? Because royalty sat, that's what they did. And if you came to them, you would be, bow or kneel, but they were in control, they were sovereign, they were over things. They didn't need to respond to any man with a sense of urgency and so they sat. And yet Stephen has his eyes opened up and he sees Jesus standing. What's the significance there? And man, my heart got so stirred because I'm like, Stephen, Stephen knew the story, right? So he would know that when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness and feeling like he was at the point of death, God the Father sent angels to comfort Jesus. But Stephen is there at his moment of crisis. And as he's getting ready to die and feeling the pains of death, he gets a visit from Jesus himself. And he's not seated. He's standing. Stephen is getting a standing ovation from heaven from Jesus himself. And he's so excited about it that he shouts out, look, I see it, I see Jesus and he And it's easy for him to say, Father, forgive them. And it's easy for him to say, Lord, give them a pass. And it's easy because he gets Jesus standing, so proud, welcoming him in. And I spent the rest of my afternoon saying, God, I just want, I wanna live my life for the standing ovation of heaven. That's what I wanna do. I don't care if it's popular and I don't care if it's cool and I don't care if it's impressive and I don't care if people think of me as a good or a great anything. If I can get the son of man standing at the right hand of the throne of God, that's all I need. I wanna live for the standing ovation from heaven. And this morning, church, can I call you to that? There's nothing wrong with climbing the corporate ladder in and of itself. And there's nothing wrong with having status and prestige. And there's nothing wrong with your bank account increasing. And there's nothing wrong with going after promotions. But that is not what we live for, disciples of Jesus. We live for the well done, good and faithful servant. And when Stephen realized he got that, nothing else mattered. And if we could structure our lives in such a way where we're living for that, I'm telling you, church, nothing. you join me as we pray Jesus you're alive and you're moving and you're here and you're present would you move in our hearts right now if you're here in the room if you're watching online I want to give you an opportunity to respond to the love of God Maybe for you, you need to respond for forgiveness and a fresh start. You need new leadership in your life. You need the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to become the King of your heart. If that's you, I wanna invite you to respond. Maybe you need to ask God for clarity, to know your part in the story. Maybe you need to ask him for boldness. You know it, but you need boldness to live your part in the story. Maybe this morning you need to recommit to his words and then following his ways, whatever your action step is, can I call you to take it today that we would enact this Father's Day in all of its glory and give God the greatest gift on Father's Day that he longs for, which is the people that he loves. So here's how I'd like to close. If you all could stand to your feet.
you're here in the room. And if I could get our prayer partners up here to line the front. We'd love to pray and agree with you. If God is stirring something in your heart, you've got a group of people up here who just love Jesus and would love to pray and agree and speak words of life over you. And as soon as we begin to sing out this final chorus to close our time together, if you'd like to receive prayer, if God's doing something in your heart, or if you're just in a spot where you're like, man, I don't know what I need. I, I, I need God. We'd love to pray with you and watch God do his thing. So as soon as we start to sing, you're welcome to come forward. Let's close out together. What could I say? What could I do? were yours. Lord, looking at the example that we have in Stephen, an ordinary individual turned passionate follower of Jesus in life and in death, God, we're yours. God, I pray over this church family that we would be people who allow your word to dwell in us deeply and richly, that we get it in our heads, that it moves into our hearts, that it transforms our very being, and that as we live our lives, we increasingly remind people of Jesus. Lord, give us the grace. Our world needs it now more than ever. Give us the courage, give us the ability to follow your lead to obey your promptings, to play our part in the story that you are writing, the redemptive story that you are planning for all of humanity. Give us the grace to say yes, no matter the opposition and no matter the cost. Lord, I pray a blessing over your people here on this Father's Day. As we remember this Juneteenth, that you would bless them and keep them, that you'd make your face shine upon them, and be gracious to them that you'd lift up your countenance upon them and give them your shalom.
shalom, perfect peace. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Love you, church. You guys are amazing. Hey, if God's doing something in your heart, we're gonna linger here for a moment. I'd love for you to come up and receive some prayer. Otherwise, dads, make sure on your way out, you grab your little box of donuts and bacon, feel loved and celebrated because you very much are. God bless you, church. We love you. We'll see you in your microchurches and right back here at Western next week.